Hello and welcome to Apostolic Voice. I am your host, Ryan French. Reverend Steve Waldron is on the program today, and we're going to have an absolutely riveting conversation about the literal interpretation of the biblical description of a six-day creation versus the secular religion of evolution in the Big Bang Theory. We're taking a deep plunge into the book of Genesis based off of Stephen's new book series entitled Commentary on Genesis, Volume 1, Discussions and Scripture Series, A Creationist Commentary. There are three books available in this series right now, which you can find on Amazon.com. This is Pastor Waldron's third time on Apostolic Voice. In episode 37, we asked and answered the question, is the King James Bible the best translation? And in episode 38, we dismantled the common smear tactic against holiness Pentecostals, which asserts that we're legalists. Steve Waldron pastors a tremendous church called New Life of Albany, Georgia. He's featured on the daily long-running New Life of Albany, Georgia YouTube channel, garnering millions of views. He also produces a podcast called Biblical Archaeology Today, which I highly recommend. He was the managing editor of the Premier Study Bible, a loving husband of 36 years, and a longtime instructor at Indiana Bible College, where I had the privilege of first meeting him. Many moons ago, he had the difficult challenge of teaching my young, thick mind, and I'm so glad he did. You can find links to all of the things mentioned above in the show notes and at ryanafrench.com. All right, let's talk about the beginning of the world. Pastor Waldron, thank you so much for being on Apostolic Voice today and for writing this tremendous commentary. I'm really excited about our conversation. So honored to be here, and I love the Bible, as you do, so we're going to look through a little bit of the book of Genesis today. So, uh, so far, I've read through volume one, and this is a three-part series. I assume in the, in the next two parts, for those that are listening, we're going to be, the way the book the commentary is written it's it's very it's very readable it's very conversational uh and and you actually go through scripture by scripture do you continue that format in volumes two and three yes sir we do that's that's outstanding what what inspired you to to write on the book of genesis in particular well, I taught science in the Bible for several years at Indiana Bible College, so always had a uh, burden for beginning. Yes. And over the course of time as well, I've, I've just kind of seen that uh, creation or the absence thereof in the secular mind, that's really the tip of the spear Satan uses to try to invalidate the Christian faith. You know, so many people you hear it, well, if Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is mythology or not accurate, well, the rest of the chapters in the Bible aren't either. 
and uh, it's there we find the fall of man, and so everything that was lost in the garden is regained by Jesus, the last Adam. So if there was no such thing as a first Adam, then mm. so much of the New Testament just doesn't make any sense. Matter of fact, the rest of the Bible. So really wanted to give people clarity that they can trust their Bible, even what's considered the oldest portions and the oldest historical portions of it, that it is accurate and it's archaeologically and historically verifiable and and it's true and it's not contradictory. So you and I are both uh, literal six-day creationists, and that's one of the first things you say in the beginning of the book is affirming your belief in the six-day creation. For those listening who who may not know any other view or for those who might hold other views, can you walk us through some of the the other iterations that, and, and some of the machinations people go through to try to superimpose evolution into the the biblical narrative? Sure. Well, evolution, as I mentioned, is the tip of the sphere. And so it, it really existed before Charles Darwin. As a matter of fact, I've got two of his grandfather's books, the Erasmus Darwin, who was in the Hellfire Club there in the UK, uh, The Temple of Nature and Zoonomia, where he really teaches evolution there in the 1790s. Wow. And it's really an attempt to have a coherent cosmogony or view of beginnings without God. And without so, God. yeah. Uh, and so in the atheist worldview, they had been searching for this and they kind of settled on Darwinism, that this mechanism that over long epochs of time, hundreds of millions and even billions of years, that things gradually arose. And it, it's all contradictory to not only secular evidence that things in the fossil record spontaneously arise, uh, fully formed and fully filled. There's no precursors, and then there's no change you'd expect to find in the fossil record. For example, Darwin thought this. He said we just hadn't found enough fossils, that everything would be changed going from you know, amphibian, fish to amphibian to mammal to, and we don't find any of that. And so in the Bible, let's say in Genesis 1, people try to, uh, try to make that long periods of time. So not literal six days, but some people will say, uh, they'll quote the scripture, you know, a day is as a thousand years with the Lord. And so maybe it could be a million years there. Yeah, a thousand, seven thousand, a million. I've got a, two very good friends of mine. They think the first three days of creation are indeterminate amounts of time. And then beginning on day four, you come into 24 hour solar days. But none of it works, such as their theory. Okay, on the third day, you have plant life. Well, we know that plants can't survive without mammals. That. We breathe out CO2, they breathe in CO2, they breathe out, so to speak, oxygen, and we breathe in oxygen. So we had to be created very close, you know, right. two weeks, within a couple of days of each other. So even a theory like that that tries to be God-honoring, but I've, I've found, Brother Ryan, that most of the time it's just an attempt to marry the Bible with 
a secular worldview and not necessarily evidentiary based. And it's just like, see, we believe in millions of years too, just like y'all. And uh, it's not where the evidence leads and it's not what scripture teaches. Tragically, it feels like it comes from an inferiority complex sometimes where Christians feel like we have to bow down to the altar of science when so often, especially in modern science, it feels like it's not scientific at all. It's just theoretical, and it takes more faith to believe in that theoretical science than it does the literal Word of God. Well, no doubt about that. And there's so much, let's say, with the theory of evolution that is so speculative, like dark matter, antimatter, maybe heavy matter, that is not verifiable at all. As you said, it's not scientific. It's just something, okay, we have this postulate of the Big Bang Theory. And that wonderful article you sent me the other day from the Big Think. Yeah. You know, I've shared that with people that it's what six-day creationists have always said, that there was not enough matter within the singularity, used to be called the primeval atom or the singularity, to produce all the mass that exist in the universe. Yes. It was impossible for this infinitesimally small singularity to do that. So now they're coming up with, you know, pre-inflationary things before the singularity, which again is total speculation. Complete, not complete speculation. Yeah. Unbelievable. And it's, a, it's It really, Darwinism, you know, everything from the index of prohibited books and the uh, heretic, you know, you're a heretic if you don't line up with what they say. It, it really is, has all the characteristics of religion, and it takes faith to believe because it's totally contrary to the evidence. And it really has all the character- characteristics of a cultish religion. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm trying to be kinder, but that is exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to read this quote from uh, page seven in the in the set up to your your book you said the theory of evolution destroys our connections with the past and with god are we in the image of a bacteria or god does the world have purpose or is all just random chance how can we know where we're going if we do not know where we came from is there a sense of meaning the literal interpretation of the book of genesis is consistent with reality It is what we see when we look around, whether biologically, geologically, morally, or astronomically. Everything fits perfectly with Scripture. I found this to be true. Do you find that as you go through this, that that it makes sense to people that even the science really lines up with the Word of God, real science, not not science so-called or speculative science or godless science, but real science uh, lines up with the Word of God. Yeah, and it's usually very simple things that make the light come on. I remember my sister's a nuclear engineer, and she watched that uh, very famous video, Privileged Planet. Yes. It's a wonderful DVD, and it turned her into a six-day creationist. And so... Simple things such as uh, bees need plants, plants need bees, so they had to be created nearly simultaneously. The um, 
harmony we talk about between plants and mammals and mammals and plants. Yes. Uh, male and female of each species. There's very it's specificity that if you, especially again in the complexities of what it means to be a female, what it means to be a male, that procreation, male and, and female, had to be created. They couldn't have evolved because for procreation, it takes uh, fully formed and fully filled for that to happen. So it's really, uh, Brother Ryan, many times very uh, simple things. And people are like, yeah, that really makes sense. Another statistic that's really helped people, too, is like when you say, you know, the sun is decreasing at the rate of five feet a second. Yes. And that's just verifiably true. Well, you know, if you go back just a few thousand years, the sun is far too close to the earth for there to be any life forms. And so, again, just, and there's many, many statistics like that, dozens of of things such as that, that the light goes off and they're like, yeah, that things have to be, uh, you know, very young and had to have been created instantaneously by God. And again, the term fully formed and fully filled for procreation to take place. Yeah, the sun is fascinating. You mentioned the moon in the book as well, the tides and and uh, and I forget the exact reference there, but you, you mentioned, uh, and it struck me, I'd never thought of it that way, how the uh, the moon, is it coming closer to the earth? Is that what it is? Every... It's actually receding between one and three quarters of an inch and two and three quarters of an inch a year. Uh, it's moving away from the earth. Away, that's right. Yeah, but several, if, so if this process would have been several thousand years ago, the moon would have either been captured into our gravitational pull to such an extent it would have crashed into the earth, which would have obviously been cataclysmic, or um, would be too close to the earth for the tidal systems to work properly and it would have caused enormous chaos and axis wobble and all of these things. And so again, that's just another uh, observational uh, thing, even like topsoil, you know, people wonder where topsoil came from. Mm. Well, it really came from the, the worldwide flood. So it's this crisis, like the United Nations studies this and who and, what are we going to do when all the topsoil is depleted? But because it's rapidly declining. But, you know, back a few thousand years ago, if you go beyond that, topsoil would have been gone. One other thing I'd like to quickly mention is population statistics. Yes. That um, the population has basically increased somewhere. And let's say if we date the flood using Usher, uh, 2348, 2349 BC, increasing about, you know, 1% uh, a year. If you, and that's been accurate, if you, you would get right around 8 billion if you did that to now, it counts for wars, disease, and all of these things. That uh, the earth, if the earth was even another three or 4,000 years older before the flood, you couldn't fit all the population into all the planets in our solar system. Isn't that something? Because it, it 
found so much. You know, 1950s population of the Earth, I think, was 2 billion. You can check my stats on that, but it was somewhere around that. And so it's just exploded. That's just how it, it goes. And so, again, population statistics show a young Earth. Dendrochronology, which is the study of tree rings. Uh, trees don't just die naturally. They have to have either a parasite disease or wind or lightning or something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they there's no trees really older than 4,000 years of age as well, going back to the flood. So there's just a, a whole host of, of uh, reasons scientifically to believe in the young earth. And, and the founders of modern science, like Isaac Newton, uh, Kepler, and the people who laid the foundation for the remarkable discoveries we've got today, Faraday, were all six-day creationists. And we're thinking God's thoughts after them, as they said. I remember as a very young teenager, I guess, maybe 13, 14, wrestling with the questions of evolution, as every Christian young person has to do regardless of their upbringing, because the culture just throws it in your face. And, and you really do have to settle the question in your heart. And I remember very clearly the, the things that, that, of course, my, my relationship with God and my faith in God and all of that uh, was, was paramount to my thinking. But also, just logically, I remember thinking, uh, and, and I'm not a scientific genius by any stretch of the imagination, but I, even at 13, I remember understanding if the earth is millions or billions of years old, and if the sun is basically a big ball of gas, and I know that I'm being extremely uh, simplistic here, that one of two things happens. Either the sun was so large at some point that it would have burned the earth up, or two, it, the sun would have burned out at some point because it, it's not inexhaustible. It's not an inexhaustible resource. So I remember thinking, so that, that lends itself to the, the idea that it had to have been created instantaneously and in a perfect created way to where the world and the earth specifically could survive and even thrive with the sun. Yeah. It, you know, and as I bring out, and that's a great point, in uh, privileged planets, as they bring out, you know, even the miracle of water, the different properties of water, that uh, like lakes are colder at the bottom until they go to freeze and they freeze from the top. So they freeze from the bottom, then fish couldn't exist because mm. they freeze all the way up. And so there's several anomalies like that. And even where we're at in the Milky Way, we're in an arm of the Milky Way, we're surrounded about 90% by gaseous arms. And as they bring out, it's like something wanted us to observe. Mm. Because if we were in that gaseous arm, we couldn't observe. But we're in this little 10% sliver that we can see all around us, all around the universe. And when you get into uh, Genesis and you realize the Earth existed before the stars. Before the stars. yeah, that, that's exactly right. That God created the uh, the earth, then the stars, and therefore signs and seasons and these type things. And so 
it again just fits perfectly. He spent five words on the stars, 50 chapters on the tabernacle. It shows where God's heart is, you know, the seeking and saving that which was lost. Yes, I read that particular line last night a second time, and it, it struck me how <laughs> here man is is constantly struggling with the stars and the universe and the universes and the planets and god barely mentions it in his word he just creates it it's done and then he moves on to the really important thing and that is redeeming humanity amen you said that our heart constantly cries back for eden i've never this was uh, you don't always go into the psychology of things you tend to uh lean more scientific but you you did you did wax a little philosophical here when you said our heart constantly cries back for Eden, utopian schemes and dreams, Jungian archetypes, tragedies and redemption of romanticism are all echoes back to Eden. Our susceptibility to platitudes, demagoguery, and the cry of liberty, equality, fraternity are the fallen human state trying to fix what is wrong, what went wrong at Eden. Unfortunately, our lens is tainted and skewed, and we're powerless in ourselves to fix it. Only the Creator can fix creation. We tend to build towers of Babel. What a powerful philosophical paragraph that is. We really do. I'd never thought of it that way. I hope a listener can grasp this. It, it really does seem like we're, we're constantly wishing for a way to go back to the beginning, to creation that God originally intended. Yeah, it, you know, and you've got politicians and our culture in America so balkanized and so divided that I tend to look at it like people, and, and I'm going to mention a politician by her initials, I don't mean any disrespect, but AOC, so many people know who AOC is. Yes. Like, you're a catch for Ted. That, you know, I don't think she's a bad person. Now, in the sense that we're all bad people and our heart is deceitful and wicked and all this. We all have a sinful nature. Sure. But I think, like, she's just looking at the world and saying, we can fix this and things can be better. And, you know, the top 1% owning more than the bottom 90% and things like that. This, this is all, to me, man's fallen human nature and the echoes of Eden. Saying it was perfection one time. Mm. Let's try to get back. Thomas More's Utopia and Francis Bacon's uh, The New Atlantis and all of these uh, utopian novels over the year and social engineers. It's, it's, and I know there's a power involved, there's a power play involved, I know there's spiritual forces involved, but I do think that there is an element of the uh, people that are sincere, the social justice movements going on in the world today. It's just like things can be better. There was a wrong here. We need to make this right. But unfortunately, Satan manipulates that. And we see lies. Things aren't presented sometimes totally correctly. But it's this longing of the human heart to, to get back to Eden. Every, everything can be perfect. And so often, even our finite desire to make things better or to fix something or to right a wrong, in the end, because we're so tainted, all of us are, that 
the base instinct can wind up being retribution or vengeance or a get even mentality where in righting the wrong, we're actually trying to gain some kind of, of justice, our own version of justice. And that taints the waters of everything to where, uh, we're not actually looking for goodness. We're, we're harming others in the name of goodness. And it's just an example of how secularism is never the answer, even though sometimes the, the desire, the goal is good, but the solution is never found in secularism. It's only found in Christ. Amen. No doubt. You reminded me of the little quote by C.S. Lewis about, he said, uh, it's not the pedototalitarian I'm so concerned about. He said it's the moral good crusader. And he basically was talking about secularism. Yeah. That honestly believes by harming me, they're doing good. Mm-hmm. Because there is no limit to what they will do to harm me if they think they're doing me good. And uh, it's just so true, sir. It is self righteousness, unrestrained self righteousness. Very, very dangerous. So you you lay the foundation. Of course, most people listening know that Genesis is the it's the book of beginnings. Uh, you say that it's the foundation. I thought this was interesting. It's the it's the foundation for the remainder of Scripture. Everything else is built on the foundation of Genesis. We see death. We see the fall. We see two thousand years of human history. We see the the institution of languages, all of these things, the dispersion, the flood, of course. But then you mentioned, and this really stunned me, and I was embarrassed that it stunned me, that in the New Testament, Jesus references the book of Genesis 25 times, and it's his most quoted Old Testament book. Isn't that amazing? That that shocked me. Yeah. And he took it for granted, as do, you know, Orthodox Jews to this day. They would all, I say all, but, you know, pretty much in unison, be young earth creationists and see six days. They're Hebrewists from the babe, you know, from the womb. And yeah. so, you know, they kind of understand what it talks about. Yeah, And it was the foundation of, of Jesus' day. And uh, it was the reality he lived. He never questioned Adam and Eve, as a matter of fact, when he mentioned Adam and Eve, he said, from the beginning. From the beginning. Genesis 1-1, not, not many millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions before that. And what was lost in the garden is found in Jesus. Mm. Haley does this uh, fantastic thing in Haley's Bible Handbook, I'm sure it's many other places, of uh, the book of Revelation, the similarities of Revelation in Genesis. And it's like classically Milton's, you know, Paradise Lost and Paradise Found, Paradise Regained. And it is, if there was no fall, I've I've read atheist writings where they say this. They're like, if there was no fall, there's no need for Jesus because Jesus is coming to restore that which Mm. was lost Mm -hmm. in the fall. Yeah. And so they say, if we cast doubt or disprove Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the rest of the Bible will fall in its own wake because there's no need for that. 
you know, if Abraham wasn't a real person, then Jesus, the beginning of the New Testament, you know, Matthew 1, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the son of Abraham. Mm. And uh, it, it just is nonsensical. And then all of the references, uh, you know, if they were never in Egypt, so to speak, Joseph in, in Egypt, then the New Testament references to them being in Egypt, you know, Hebrews 11 and the jailbreak. Matter of fact, Hebrew, the Hall of Fame of Faith kind of falls the first half of that chapter. Yeah. If Genesis is incorrect. So uh, it really is the total foundation. And Jesus, again, he never questioned the book of Genesis, the historicity, the Sodom and Gomorrah episode, nothing like he never questioned it. No, he affirmed it. That is exactly right. Unequivocally. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into a little harder question here because we're we're at uh, Genesis one one <laughs> we're 26 minutes in and we're just getting past kind of the the forward but uh, Genesis one one of course in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth you say so many amazing things you you kind of rhetorically ask the question what was before the beginning now I'm gonna take that further and and ask you a question I know we could get into uh, things like was there a, a, a pre-Adamic civilization? Was there anything before the beginning? Uh, but let me ask you this. Did God create time at in Genesis 1? Did God create time in Genesis 1? Well, that is a fascinating question because what it seems, based on the evidence in Genesis and Revelation, we tend to do time based on the solar lunar cycle. Yes. Well, in Genesis 1, he says, before there was a sun and a moon, he says the evening and the morning were the first day. Yeah. The second day, same thing. Third day, same thing. Before there's a sun and a moon. And so it seems like, so then afterwards, when there's no more need for the sun and the lamb is the light there and all this, he still says, you know, there's this tree that brings forth its uh, fruit every month in its season. So it seems like, and I know this is an extraordinarily difficult concept for some people to grasp, not yourself, but I've explained it to some, and some people, they just don't get it. But it seems like the 24-hour day existed before there was a sun and moon, that the sun and the moon were superimposed on a pre-existing system. Mm. So if that's what's meant by time, then uh, we're not sure. We don't don't know if God was using that before Genesis 1-1 or not, or if he began that in Genesis with the first day, the evening and the morning, which the Jews still reckon their day from six in the evening to six in the evening just predicated on that. Um, so not sure. So uh, it's a hard question, isn't it? No, because it, no. I think of God, of course, as outside of time. We know he's not yeah. bound by time necessarily. Um, and so the question arises, did, did, time exist in some form we know god had created the angels um pre it seems anyway pre pre-creation of the world the angels existed 
And so did he create some form of time or uh, could he change time? Apparently he can, apparently he could. Does that make any sense? I know I'm getting a little off, off base here. No. But. Well, I did want to bring up just one other postulation that some may have, but again, this is all just postulation. Yes. Because he does exist outside of time. But, okay, if everything was eternal, and we can get into the definitions, if there's parsing between eternal and everlasting, all this, but before <laughs> Satan fell, right, right. There, was no sin, there was only the potentiality of sin, so they must have had free will. So before Satan and the one-third of the angels fell, it possibly, because of that sin, Things that brought in a time element at that time. Mm. Things because of sin. But again, that, you know, this is called discussions in Scripture. Right, right, right. That's a discussion. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want anybody to make a doctrine out of that. I wouldn't state that dogmatically. That's just something friends talk about and maybe rejoinder say well that didn't happen but it was an interesting thought fascinating yeah but it, but it's the type of thing we really don't know in that existence so explain the gap that some people seem to find between genesis 1 1 and 2 some try to say that the first two or three days of creation are unlimited time and the rest are really 24-hour days you mentioned that earlier can you explain to some people who might have been exposed to that. I have a lot of people mention this to me. Can you explain what people mean by that and, and what your view of that is? Well, sure. What it is, is finest Dake really probably elucidated this more than anyone that before Genesis one, one, why there were waters covering the earth is there was a satanic civilization and a satanic flood before all of this and that we're entering a recreated earth and it's based on replenish in 128 of Genesis, which the term replenish just means to fill. It doesn't mean necessarily that, especially in 1611 English, that it had been previously filled. So then they would say in an effort really because this really came out after, it was in the 1870s, after Darwin came out in 1859, that, okay, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 have this long gap of time. And this is what uh, scientists see. Mm. But again, there's really no evidence for that at all. There's no evidence linguistically for that. The Jews certainly didn't understand the gap. They never presented it. They studied scripture, you know, and Jesus actually said they had a correct view of God, John four twenty four. And all right. That. And so um, it's just not there in the Hebrew. It's just an attempt for the Ryan to marry long ages of time to say, hey, look, we believe in long ages of time, too. It's that old saying, eat us last, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're kind of like you instead of just, you know, simply and boldly proclaiming the word of God and what it says, there's a great power and truth. And so, uh, the war between science and Christianity is, uh, usually, you know, not, not a good one. And so I think truth is, is 
the main thing. So it just, it didn't occur. And then there's no reason, as a matter of fact, the language would militate against it, that the first, second, and third days of creation to be longer than the fourth, fifth, and sixth, because in each day, it just says the evening and the morning was the first day, evening and the morning, the second yeah. day. Yeah. When you get to Exodus, it's very clear that it's six days that it's talking about when it's mentioned again in the book of Exodus. When in doubt, and, just take the take it at its word. Yeah. It, it's, and again, it, when you get to the third day and you've got plants, well, how did they survive if the third day is millions of years of age? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, Genesis 1 and 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Where did the water come from? Well, God created that. Now, there is some evidence that there's water in heaven. Um, and I'm probably not prepared to present all that evidence at this moment. But it does have rather amazing properties. Now, we know water is not spiritual. It's material. Things in heaven are uh, spiritual. At the same time, there's types in heaven. There's shadows and all this. And so, uh, but it would have just been a creation by God. It doesn't necessarily or even anywhere indicate that it was a pre-Adamic flood destroying Satan's kingdom here upon earth. And they would also say that's where dinosaurs came from, and that's where certain megaliths and certain buried cities came from. I think all of that's very explainable within the 6,000-year time frame period, especially with the the Great Flood. People miss this, too, that the flood, water, contaminates uh, testing systems. Mm, Yes, Whenever people are dating and saying this is millions of years and all this, first of all, like, you know, the strontium method or something, they're assuming that something was 100% strontium or radium or something. There's no evidence of that. It could have been created 50% strontium and 50% iron ore or something. And secondly, the samples have all been uh, corrupted with water touching them during the flood. And so it would give very uh, varying degrees of ages. The ice core samples and all that, that's really a whole new realm of thing. But uh, it's a very tenuous proposition to try to accurately date things, especially when so many things like living things have been dated, you know, 800 years of age or things that are demonstrably, you know, just a few years old. It'll say it's 800 years old or something. There's just, so much. The evolution handbook really goes into uh, some great uh, understanding of that, as does Walt Brown. He got yes. a PhD from MIT. The book in the beginning has some tremendous. You know, we're we jumping uh, to the flood, and uh, just to take that further for just a moment, I, I always think it's fascinating that one of the most ridiculed stories in the Bible, which is the great worldwide flood and Noah's Ark and all of that, that's one of the things that skeptics and atheists will kind of hurl at us is like a laughable, ridiculous, over-the-top story. And yet, the worldwide flood is one of the most provable 
scientifically provable facts of the Bible. I think I read a book, and I'm going to butcher this up, but I will put it on the at RyanAFrench.com, uh, a link to it. I think it was just called The Flood, and I can't remember the author. It was called The Flood. And, uh, I mean, a massive book by an archaeologist and, and who studied just the fossil record that proves a worldwide flood, and even the the perceived age of the earth and the mountains and things of that nature. Do you agree with that, that the flood did so much to age the earth? Uh, oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, and another thing, maybe a couple other things quickly about that is, first of all, George Frazier, who was basically an atheist, but he examined flood legends around the world. And he yes. said there were 427 different flood legends around, around the world. I remember when I was reading the Greek myths, you know, Edith Hamilton's authoritative edition on that, you know, you get the Deucalion and they've got a flood myth, you know, and even Atlantis, but I go back to that, but Zoroastrian flood myths, and Amerindian flood myths, and Mayan flood myths, and yeah. Chinese myths, and that the Chinese lettering system actually uh, refers to the flood. And uh, there's a great book about Chinese letters and Genesis, you know, written, I think, 1978, 1979. I've actually talked to some Chinese natives about this, but um, it refers to the flood. Like their word for boat, the symbol is like uh, eight or something like that, referring to the eight people on the, the boat. And I know I'm just going like a pinball here, but. Uh, there's so much there. I just did a podcast the other day on, you know, the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid. Yeah. They now say we're under a minimum of 245 feet of water. And they have a fossilized um, sea urchin on the Great Pyramid fossilized amazing and so the people who don't believe in god they try to say well that was fossilized in the limestone that they used well the scientist who discovered it said that is it's impossible and he had various reasons of why it was impossible for that to happen it had to be fossilized while it was on the great pyramid and uh, overwhelming so, evidence for a worldwide flood Truly. Well, in geology, the only way you can explain geology is through the flood. What most evolutionary geologists won't tell you is what they expect to find is basically found nowhere on Earth. And they constantly find it upside down. And then the whole petrification process, the mm. fossilization process, like when Mount St. Helens blew up, you know, one of the trees, it blew a, a fir tree, I think it was a fir, into Spirit Lake by Mount St. Helens, and then it was filled up with the soup from the explosion all that. Well, and so it was like a spear. It was straight up and down. And scientists, when they found it, they, would have, they said, now, if we would have just found this in the wild, we would have said it went through several geological ages 
and uh, beginning 80 million years ago and extending upwards, when in reality, we all know it just happened in 1981, I think it was 1980, 1981. <laughs> right. so, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, the it's, Grand Canyon. Oh, say that now, the Grand Canyon? Well, I was going to say the Grand Canyon has uh, extreme evidence of a worldwide flood. Yes, I was hoping you'd mention that. Yeah, that the Colorado River just could not have carved that out, that it had to be done rapidly. And even the Ice Ages, what we call the Ice Ages and all that, was really the floodwaters of Genesis 822 that seed time and harvest, cold and winter, I mean cold and heat, summer and winter, are going to be a part of the Noah Covenant. That is, the floodwaters were receding, they were freezing as they were receding. This is where glaciers come from, and this is where what would be called ice ages were actually just the recension from the flood. And so it all fits very perfectly. What we see, reality, you know, the male and female, the plant, uh, human interaction, all this, uh, all of it fits totally with what happens in Genesis 1. Even languages and dispersion. Yeah, and it doesn't fit with the Atrahasic epic. It doesn't fit with the Enuma Elish or any of the other creation myths, Sumerian creation myths around the world. Those are very obviously mythologies and a distortion of the truth found in Genesis. Now, let me ask you a question from Genesis 1-4. God saw light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now, you mentioned this briefly, and... You mentioned how light and darkness can't mix. This is a prelude to the idea of separation, and I even see, uh, I see, kind of the the shadowing, the foreshadowing of holiness, and what it means to be in the light, and and, and all of these powerful things that Jesus alluded to, and and uh, and so forth. But to come to a scientific question, I have always taught and preached, and maybe you can correct me that. Darkness is not a tangible thing. In other words, God didn't create darkness. That darkness existed because it's the absence of light. God created light. That dispersed the darkness. Darkness isn't a created thing. And I've often likened that to evil that, you know, because the great question that people wrestle with is where did evil come from? Did God create evil? Well, he couldn't be a good God and create evil. But if evil exists... How could something exist that God didn't create? And so my my philosophical response has always been that uh, evil is is much like darkness. It's not a created thing. It's just the absence of God. It's the absence of light. It's the absence of the holiness of God. Am I off base with that, or could you correct me, or maybe we could respectfully disagree? I'm just curious what your thoughts are <laughs> and that well, that process. Well, obviously, in, in some ways, I, I think we can't talk universals here. That there are instances where darkness is the absence of light. But it could be. If Satan had already fallen, and this is a big question, mm. even among good conservative scholars, some people say Satan didn't fall to like day five, day six, something like that. Mm. Uh, other people would say, he fell before that, and the earth was 
Satan's prison house, so to speak. And uh, so if Satan had fallen and he had been cast down to earth, the Isaiah fourteen twelve through 14 paradigm, if that had in fact happened, it could be that's the darkness mentioned here. Mm. Um, it could be. I'm not saying it is. So much of this, again, I want to refer people to the title of the book. It's not dogmatics in Scripture. It is discussions in Scripture. Yes, yes. So there are certain things we totally agree on. Uh, you know, uh, Acts 2.38, oneness, holiness, and all these things. And then there are certain things like, well, let's talk about that. And so it, it's obvious darkness was here. It says darkness was upon the face of the deep. And again, getting back to that question where water came from, I mean, it just had to be created by God. God just, in his sovereignty, just as he created earth, he created water as well. Darkness on the face of the deep, the abyss, that maybe that has something to do with the fall of Satan, his angels, and then the light. You know, because you get the first John when it's talking about the light, mm-hmm. and also John one, he's the true light, the light is every man that cometh into the world. And these type things that some people say uh, that the light is uh, like the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. My my take on that though is it says before the foundation of the world, and the world was already here, and so I I don't see the connection there, but. Some people would say that's when the plan of God, the light it's talking about here is the plan of God. Because it's obvious there's light before the sun and the stars. And, but see, that's all explained in Revelation because there'll be the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes. With no need. Uh, the heavens will be rolled together as a scroll and all these things. And uh, no need for the sun. So... Uh, so yeah, I think darkness was existing here, and it very well could have been the absence of light, and then God created light. And then what you mentioned about you see shadows of holiness and all this, it, it does seem like Paul may have had this in mind, or this principle, he divided the light from the darkness, mm-hmm. when in 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 7, 1. So... Amazing. The great holiness scripture. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with let let's say that I'm not saying that you particularly do, but let's say someone rejects because even scientifically there seems to be some consensus that darkness is not actually a, a substance or a thing, it's the absence of a thing. But let's say you reject that and darkness is a, a, a a substance. How do you philosophically, and I know we're jumping back and forth here, how do you philosophically handle then the create the the question of evil and its origination, where how it formed, where it came from, what it is? Yeah, that's the theodic. <laughs> I know we're deep in it now. We're deep in the weed. Well, that's weeds. okay. Well, like I said, I think the darkness question you can't use a universal that there are occasions that darkness, the absence of light. There are occasions like Satan is the prince of darkness. Uh, Satan blinds or causes darkness over people in Second Corinthians 4. 
this brings us back to the character and nature of God. Okay, if God is holy, he's perfect, he's morally just, he's very definition that he's whatever he does is right. That's the definition of right. Well, if he's the word and the word, let's for say, uh, contains instances of, of David's sin, for example, or Assyrians murdering and ripping up women with children. Well, if that was part and parcel in the nature of God, then how is God still sinless? Well, the answer to that is is he didn't commit any of those actions. That was just his omniscience and his foreknowledge, knowing those particular actions. And so going back to darkness, I think there is, if I turn off the light, there's darkness, and I don't think darkness has a substance. Now, people talk about dark matter. Right. In these kind of things. Right. But uh, there's really no evidence for that. There's, you know, we won't even get into that because that's a, a, a wormhole in and of itself. It's a rabbit hole in and of itself. <laughs> yes. But uh, there is, just as God is light, you know, Satan would be darkness. So there may be, uh, you know, a sense where darkness as far as Satan has a substance. And then where evil comes from is it came from freedom of choice, that God did not create robots. So when it says he creates the evil, I think it's Isaiah 45. Well, he created the being, and even in that instance, it's using evil in a sense of uh, bad things occurring or something. It's not what we would necessarily call evil today, but anyhow, he created beings that he gave the choice to become evil or good just because he wanted free will worship. So it was an indirect creation. Satan sinned. He's the father of lies. He was the first sinner. And uh, and that's all fascinating in itself. I, I can't imagine, Brother Ryan, I can't imagine being in the presence of a fulgence glory, the glory of God, and not, okay, I could see Satan getting lifted up in pride. I can't see with Satan how he influenced a third of the angels to worship him yeah, and rebel. It's, it's incredibly difficult to understand. I'm going to ask you a question my son asked me, who is uh, 11 years old, <laughs> and you know, kids... Kids have a way of really honing in on the hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> and and because uh, I was talking about uh, this book and and that we were going to be speaking and 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 he said to me, if if God created Satan, or if God, uh, yes, if God, well, he created, uh, an angel who who fell and became what we now call Satan. How how do we know, for example, when we get to heaven, that the remaining angels there won't fall at some later date and time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do know the Bible very clearly teaches we won't because when we see him, we'll be like him and all of this. So there will be no possibility of us falling. And uh, I'm sure the Bible has the answer to that. I am not 
readily at hand to answer that question appropriately. Well, now you know exactly how I feel all the time with my son. (laughs) (laughs) He has a way of getting into those, those, those questions that just take you off guard because kids have a way of thinking of it in a, in a, just an offbeat way that you would never, never go on your own. All right. Well, let me jump into the law of biogenesis that life produces life. You have a great, great several paragraphs on this. And I just want to let you roll with it for a minute. Also the idea of how uh, the complexity of DNA, like could a seed evolve? It's impossible for a seed to evolve. Science has no answers for that. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that and, and help some shore up someone's faith in creationism with this point that's that's really so powerful i i would if just really quickly i did want to say there are people like michael heiser in these that would say there were two separate falls of angels yes one third fell and then the watchers fell later yes i don't ascribe to that at all right but i did just bring that up as to that yeah, it's, a, it's a fascinating thought isn't it but ah means no, biogenesis has never occurred. We've never seen life come from that life. And so it was actually um, Louis Pasteur who disproved this. He disproved it to such a point. The Theosophical Society with Annie Wood Bazant was casting spells on him because she knew and they knew that it totally disproved the uh, theory of evolution. And so what abiogenesis says is that things can arise spontaneously from non-life. And so till the late 1800s, it was just assumed that meat rotting, the maggots that would come on that meat, came from the meat. Mm. That it just came there. Well, Pasteur made what he called Pasteur's beaker, where he put some meat in there, and then he had a series of like pathways where air could still get in there, but a fly could not get in there. Mm. And so they were, he was able to observe the meat decompose with no maggots. And so it was immediately seen that this is scientifically verifiable, it's repeatable, people did repeat it which is classic science, and it totally destroyed uh, Darwinianism yes. at, the, at that time. Um, what, what's the old saying? Bad ideas never die. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because of man's sinful nature and our fallen human hearts and our susceptibility to lies, deceitful heart. But, uh, but it did just devastate it. And so then there was a monk as well that did some experimentation. And uh, his name, let me get his name. I want to say it was Mendel. Yes. Gregor Mendel, Mendelian genetics. And so what he showed is, let's say, rats. If you cut off a rat tail to a thousand generations, the rat is still going to be born. The next rat generation is going to be born with a tail because the it, the DNA tells it that. They didn't Except. understand DNA at that time and all that. He's considered really the father of modern genetics. 
um, Jews have been getting circumcised for 4,000 years. They still need to get circumcised. Yeah, yeah. And so these factors, both of them together, really showed that life only comes from life, that it takes a male and a female of each species to bring life, and that there's never been an uh, instance where a computer begat another computer. It's not observable. So initial life had to come from life, the life giver. And then for procreation, to come after that, it had to be a male and a female. And Brother Ryan, it's so powerful when he said it, he blessed them. Mm, yes. Multiply, that that blessing still exists today. That that power of procreation still to multiply still exists today. One other thing I want to mention, too, we, we talked about knowing a young earth. Geneticists tell us there's defective accretions in our DNA that's passed down from every generation. Scientists estimate there's probably been about 140 generations of humans on Earth, you know, from 4,000 BC to now. And geneticists now can see because of what they call mutative accretion. At this 0.0022% approximately, it varies. That's just the uh, kind of the median of negative accretions that occur in our genetics with each generation. That it would be impossible for man to procreate past 300 generations. Wow. Because the accretions would be such that it would make our DNA defective, that it would we would cease to be able to be a viable being for procreation. That's just another young earth. In other creation. words, we're, we're mutating downwards, not upwards. Yeah. And even Darwin, I mean, the, the second book, The Descent of Man, where he repudiates his initial understanding of Darwinian. <laughs> right. The Descent of Man, and what he meant by The Descent of Man is immorals, that we're, uh, we're apes and we're not in the image of God any longer. And so our unalienable rights, this is why communists, they begin teaching. I remember reading a Hungarian that when communists took over Hungary, the very first order of business where they did anything was put evolution in the schools because freedom comes. Everybody is endowed by their creator, mm-hmm. the Montesquieu tradition, with certain unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, not any longer. We have beer management systems. If we're just animals, well, everything's fine. When you, uh, and, and I don't know if we're allowed to talk about this on a podcast, but like abortion, when you take a life, if we are, just edit that part out. If we're not allowed to talk about this. Well, they might but, take us off YouTube and they might kick us off Apple for a few days, but we're still going to talk about it. That's okay. <laughs> well, and you can edit it. Feel free. Any of this. But it, it when you take a human life like that, you see, from an evolutionary viewpoint, it's just game management. Well, even population control, you think of euthanasia or, yeah. or any form of pop or what China does, for example, any form of population control, it can all be skewed. We even see this with COVID now. If I, we're really going to get kicked off now, but 
Uh, You can do just about anything in the name of the greater good for humanity when you take individuality away. The image, each individual being created in the image of God. But when you when you step away from the individual and you begin thinking of humanity as this just mass of of uh, evolving matter, and we've got to do what's what's best for the greater good, well, now you can justify murdering millions of people, really, in the name of preserving future generations. Isn't that amazing? That image of DI, there's so much involved there. If I look at you as the image of God, then I love you, I respect you, I can't be racist against you. Yes. I want your best because I realize we're all created in the image of God. We're all in this fallen world and fallen state together. Even though some have got that miraculous new birth, I want to share that with you. And uh, there can be no... Uh, pride and self-righteousness because you realize everybody has value and is in the image of God and um, the fall has caused that stain to become on us all. And so it, it plays a huge role in society. I can't be, I can't be better than you because you're also created in the image of God. Correct. But if you are just a a, an animal that has survived and is surviving upwards, then you're justified to do what it takes to survive in order to propagate the species. Uh, because if we're just animals, then there's no value there. Christianity has done more to bring individual rights and values to people than anything else. That's right. And the social Darwinists saw this. Your robber barons immediately, like in the 1870s and 80s. And that's why, because they're like, we were just stronger. We, you know, we're worth billions of dollars just because we're better. Yeah. We won, you know, we won the battle of survival, survival of the fittest. So it's fascinating if you, if you pay any attention to the, the atheistic world, young atheism or the new atheists are really starting to finally come clean and and admit that there's a real problem with morality and human goodness when you subscribe completely to a godless world and believe wholeheartedly in evolution because there really is no foundation. Now we're getting philosophical again, but there's no foundation for goodness apart from God. You, You can't even define goodness apart from God. And certainly evolution doesn't bring any answers to those questions, that's for sure. Well, that's what I appreciate about Sam Harris. You know, he's one of the, he's an atheist, horrible atheist. But he's trying to say, how do we have morality? Even your Jordan Peterson. How do we have morality if we have no God? Who defines it? Yeah. How do we get it? It's amazing. Well, I want to, I want to end with, with this, since we could we could go another four hours, and I hope you'll come back. Please do, and we'll do this again very soon. Um, and by the way, I am going to be sending a free book out to a listener, so uh, right. I've got a, an extra one here. I'm going to be sending it out, and I've had a lot of people request books, so I've got a I've got a waiting list, and uh, 
one one very fortunate uh, listener is gonna gonna receive a copy of what we've been going through today. But I want to end with a oneness question and a oneness thought. One of the most debated scriptures is Genesis one twenty six, and God said, "Let us make man in our image." after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth creeping thing and and uh, thing that creepeth upon the earth. So the obvious uh, question and, and the issue that Trinitarians raise as well, that's obviously an allusion, an Old Testament allusion to the Trinity. He said, let us, he's using the plural there. Um, I know what my answer is, and you do address it in the book, and I think you kind of tend to fall on what is my answer but can you can you give the the best response to oneness people who are listening or even trinitarians and, and respond to that verse and how we view that as oneness pentecostals yeah well you know genesis 127 obviously is then singular and not plural any yes. longer mm-hmm. and we say all the time, well, let's see here. Well, that's me talking. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Let us hear. Um, Jacinius, the great Hebraist, he said it was a pluralis and majesticulus, that it was just the plural majesty. The uh, monarchs of England, I've read them, uh, still say, it's still in the dictionary, that this is a definition that they speak with the royal we. The royal we, or the majestic plural. Yeah. Some say that uh, it's the angels. Now, the pushback on it being angels is angels don't create, you know, and that type of thing. And so then you have to get in discussion there. It does seem very clear um, that cherubs, you know, you, you run into cherubs in Genesis 3, I think it's 22, maybe 24. And if you go to Ezekiel 1, it says the cherubs are in the Ezekiel 1.5, that cherubs are in the uh, image of man as well. Now, all that being said, some people say it was he talking, since Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, who was foreordained, as Peter said, from the foundation of the world, that he was actually talking, since God dwells outside of time. He's like in the helicopter above the parade, being able to see the end from the beginning and everything in between, that he was talking to the... uh, um, Pre-incarnate Christ. uh, Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I was was wanting to make sure I was using theologically precise words there. (laughs) (laughs) Pre-incarnate Christ. And so I, I think any of those definitions fit. I remember Adam Clark, he was real big on the cherubim uh, uh, understanding of that. And I think more and more people are. But I think any of those, first of all, it never says Trinity, it never says three, <laughs> nothing like that. Singular in 127. So I certainly don't think it demands a Trinity at all. The language doesn't demand a Trinity at all. And uh, it never says the term Trinity or three persons. And there's so many other uh, explanations that you could discuss. And the Jews, who Jesus said had the correct view of God, they never believed it referred to anything other than a monotheistic God, one God, a personal God, a he. 
not a they. Well, as you pointed out, Moses, the inspired author of Genesis, was absolutely a monotheistic one God believer. So uh, he yeah. he wasn't he wasn't postulating a, a revelation of a triune God. Certainly, you know, I talk to Trinitarians a lot on our YouTube channel a lot. And that's one thing they really struggle with is just personal pronouns. The God, you know, several thousand times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is referred to as a he, not a they. Mm. He's a he. Yeah. Well, he's aren't they. (laughs) (laughs) And if we're in the image of God, well, we're one person. You know, people, they'll say, well, that's the psychological model of the Trinity. Your body, soul, and spirit. I'm like, but I'm one person. Right. I'm not three. Persons. I'm not three. I'm and I do have an authoritative name. I I, I can't go around uh, signing <laughs> checks right. with with uh, you know my soul or something like that. I have to use my name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that's another discussion for another day. Oh wow! Well, this has been so great. Uh, please tell me you'll come back on very soon. I'd love to, and thank you for having me. It's always a joy just to sit and chat. Sometimes I forget we're on a podcast. I'm just loving talking. I am too. I am too. Listening to what you're saying and hearing your insights, I love it. It's so much fun. Well, I want everyone to go out and buy the book. I've got all the links in the show notes and also at RyanAFrench.com. I'll have a link for all three volumes of Commentary on Genesis, Discussions and Scripture Series, A Creationist Commentary by Pastor Steve Waldron. Also, don't forget to go to his podcast, Biblical Archaeology Today with Steve Waldron. You'll be blessed by that. Also, New Life of Albany, Georgia YouTube channel. Millions of views there, and you're going to be blessed by that. Until next time, God bless you all.